Hello, everyone. I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. I'm Dr. Martha Sujadovic. I'm a professor of psychiatry and of neurology at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine in Cleveland, Ohio. Really delighted to be here today to, uh, to meet with you all. Um, I also have the great pleasure of being able to uh, introduce my podcast collaborator here, uh, Kimberly Allen. Kimberly has a, uh, a vast level of experience and she had sent me a summary um, and I'm just gonna highlight some of the, the high points. Um, otherwise we would use up all our podcast time going over uh, Kimberly's bio, but Kimberly is a licensed addiction treatment professional. She's a past fully licensed insurance agent She's founded her own consulting company to use her insurance knowledge and experience to assist addiction treatment organizations. Um, her areas of focus include the implementation of business and administrative processes related to insurance and managed care. Some of her recent consulting roles um, have included serving as senior vice president for the Global Mental Health Initiatives with Via Positive, a leading behavioral health consulting firm. As a uh, well-known mental health advocate, Kimberly served as a serves as a lived experience advisor. She collaborates with numerous leading academic institutions and advocacy organizations. You'll recognize this, you know, kind of illustrious list: uh, the Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance, University of Texas in Austin, the Steve Hicks School of Social Work, and the She Recovers Foundation. Um, Kimberly has a master's of science in family studies. And actually, Kimberly, what I found most interesting about your bio, in addition to all your accomplishments, is that you're a recreational boxer trained in boxing techniques used to assist individuals with Parkinson's yeah. disease. So I thought, yeah. I need to be really careful. And good thing this is a Zoom call, right? <laughs> My favorite activity. So, so thank you for participating and being in our uh, podcast today, Kimberly. Um, really, my my pleasure. Um, let me introduce you. Let you introduce uh, any any other snippets about yourself you'd like to say, um, and and perhaps talk a little bit about um, your journey, your personal journey, and experience with medication. Surely, as far as a snippet, I will refer to the boxing night. Um, when I got involved with boxing techniques related to Parkinson's, it's due to my passion for brain health. Um, you know, when I, when I see the majesty of the brain and what we can do with the brain, uh, boxing techniques is one of the ways I illustrate that. So it's one of the only ways I've gotten relief from my symptoms. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that. But, you know, the beginning of my story begins with my father, who was a physician who wanted to be a psychiatrist. I really, dad, if you're listening, I found a dusty manual of my dad's that's sitting right next to me uh, that he wrote when he went to Vietnam. He was a physician uh, that was drafted to Vietnam, which was a turning point in his life. Um, wow. Wow. Yeah, and he wanted to be a psychiatrist, a brilliant man. You know, he was a radiologist. He returned and became a gastroenterologist. But, you know, dad showed me what to do, what not to do. But I tell you one of the main things about my father, first of all, I loved him. So I'm the child of a, a bipolar, alcoholic, uh, really intelligent physician. And, you know, even that went to Vietnam, they got PTSD. So when he returned from a very early age, uh, one thing that he said to me is it's in the brain, it's in the brain. 
you know, and the other thing he said was hold your head up and be yourself. So um, when I opted to begin medication, I knew that I had a chronic condition, you know, a shout out to the female psychiatrist that diagnosed me. Uh, I really appreciate her. Um, I had been sober for 10 years. Um, I went to treatment three times. Uh, I smoked cigarettes. I, I had recreational drug use. Um, but more than anything, I had bulimia. And they kept, I kept going in the, like I said, they, that just shows you. I kept going in the hospital. And I remember them coming and saying, you have major depressive disorder. And they put me on lithium. Well, I knew what that was. You just heard why I knew that. You heard, you knew from your father. Oh, yeah. yes. Oh, yeah. yes. And I remember it was like standing on the deck of a ship. Whoa, whoa. And thirsty, thirsty. And dad was thirsty all the time. And he used to talk about that. And people would ridicule him, this thirsty MD. Um, right, right. I'm sure there was a lot of kind of the related stigma of the issues that he had with substance use and with alcohol as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The whole scene. Yeah. Well, a very powerful story, Kimberly. Um, What I think is particularly just kind of deep for me to listen to, though, is that from an early age, you know, you could take those very powerful kind of heavy emotions and experiences and use it to help other people. So really, um, in, in addition to yourself. So um, I, I guess that's that's kind of where maybe that's a good segue to where we're going with with today's podcast is to talk a little bit about some of your, your own experiences. And mm-hmm. I, I do want to say, so our podcast here is is focused um, predominantly on on medication treatments, but I but I also I think it would be really remiss to oversimplify the recovery process here and say that it's all about medications. Cause I think um, Kimberly, you've outlined some of the things that, that you've done like in your own path of healing um, and, and medications are just one piece of the puzzle. I think is that, do you agree yes, with that? Yes. What a privilege to have medication. What a remarkable opportunity. I. You know, on behalf of my colleagues in Africa, I'm a global advocate. So a lot of times we don't want to take our meds and they have no meds to take. And I think of them every day. Um, But yes, I've had the privilege of trial and error. I've had the privilege of nausea, of diarrhea. I've had the privilege (laughs) of dry mouth, constipation, sexual difficulties, memory recall issues. But, you know, what that means to me is, is that there are sometimes serious side effects in medications, and I've certainly experienced those. Um, and I did not always have symptom relief. But one thing that I want to say is that building the relationship with a psychiatrist that's trying to help me with the medications that they offer is something that I want to participate in because I know I have a chronic condition. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and, and Kimberly, I, I really like your your use of the word trial and error. So trial and error, I mean, at least for me as a, as a treating clinician, implies some element of trial and error on both sides. Like, we're going to try this, you know, it, it might be a, an evidence-based treatment for bipolar disorder, um, but we don't know for sure whether it's going to be the best treatment for you. And often we can only know that if we try it together, right, make a decision together. And then since 
you know, a patient might just be in a clinician's office for, you know, maybe 30 minutes if you're lucky, right? Then you've got to go out into the, into the world and into your life and experience all of the tolerability issues that might be there or not and all the recovery issues. And then it's kind of like, I mean, at least in, in, in my view, the person who is taking the medication is like the investigative reporter, right? Coming back and, and relaying like, this is what the actual experience is like boots on the ground. And now let's use this information to make the next trial and error or, or decision. So um, when, when, you, when you worked with your, your psychiatrist, did you have that kind of back? So as you say, you had the privilege of having diarrhea or all these other lovely side effects. Um, how, were you able to communicate that to your clinician to say, this is good and this is not so good or, and so on? That is, that is a really good question. I, you know, like I said, I'm really honored to have known the female psychiatrist that diagnosed me. Um, she was kind hearted and she was about to retire <laughs> and she walked in and I said, how bad is it? So I think a lot of patients are like me. How bad is it? And what does this mean for me? And she was very direct and kind hearted. And I think that with her, um, when she offered me a medication, I took it. You know, I mean, I've taken SSRIs, oral antipsychotics. I'd had all of those side effects. Um, throughout our relationship, you know, but I guess the relationship with a psychiatrist, she was someone I could tell, and then she retired. Now, after that, I met some uh, MD psychiatrists that were very, uh, I could almost hear them giving me the PHQ-9. I could hear the questions that they were asking me, and, and, and I understood that. You know, I'm clinically educated myself, but sometimes when you're sitting in the patient chair, <laughs> It was kind of a tick, and my background's in managed health. Mm-hmm. So I can hear that tick, 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 tick. You know, do you have the desire to take your own life, you know, or are you gonna hurt anyone? Um, that kind of thing can get pretty, oh gosh. That yeah. does, the word we, the word we wasn't involved back in the, in the 1980s, the yeah. 1990s. Somewhere around the 2000s, I started hearing the word we. And I'm an ex-professional athlete. It kind of reminds me, I was a pro water skier. We used to say, don't throw your handle because it pulls us all down. You can't just throw your handle. Everybody's going to get hurt. So when I hear the word we, what I think is, as long as this psychiatrist stays in the saddle with me, pulls in the yoke with me, and gives me a reasonable explanation. Like a minute ago, you know what you said? You said this might not work. Those are my favorite words because the psychiatrist is telling you the truth from yeah. that moment forward. Yeah, yeah, okay. So that kind of, that, that and it's, and it's great, you know, that you've seen the evolution and hopefully the advancement of our, our profession the same way as we've had advances in treatment, right? So we definitely have a lot more treatments uh, you know, particularly with medication treatments available than back in your father's day, um, where, where it was certainly much more limited. Um, well, let me, let me shift gears a little bit just to kind of keep us, keep us moving along. And one of the things that um, we had sort of outlined was to talk a bit about the issue of medication treatment adherence. And I wanted to ask you sort of what your kind of impression was 
with that and whether that was something that you had discussed with your with your clinicians at all. You know what's interesting, I, the word adherence, um, I have many peer colleagues that if, they, if you say the word adherence, you may have a negative response to the word adherence. Are you adhering to this? Yeah. Now, you know, considering that I've been in the saddle for a while and I, I love order. Um, and, and so for me to adhere to something, especially when I've paid for a, a expert consult, you know, if I'm sitting opposite and maybe it's because I was raised by a doctor, but if I'm sitting opposite a medical expert and they say to me, and I was criticized by this, by the way, by a psychiatrist recently, he said, how did you get better? His hair was white. He said, how did you get better? And I said, sir, you know, I adhered to what was medical advice. I opted to solicit advice. I, I invested in expert counsel. And so overall, my behavior uh, parallels that. It corresponds to that. Um, and so I, I adhered to what my uh, psychiatrist had to say, even when I think they may have been wrong, actually. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to throw my handle. I, I mean, in other words, there were times that I would take meds and everybody felt better but me. Yeah. <laughs> the psychologist felt better, my partner felt better, and I didn't feel better. Now that's kind of a bitter pill to swallow, but I will say this, you know, I made the decision to take medication and I stuck with that decision. Now I'm not saying I haven't been erratic. We can talk about that because I have. I'm a bipolar individual. I just am erratic. I am moody. Um, Kimberly, I can tell you, I can't. I, I can't even tell you how many eight-day supplies of ten-day antibiotic regimens that I've taken in my life. So well, we're we're all we're all under that. You know, in that same boat. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. That's the kind of thing that I can relate to. I, you know. Um, but you know, when I look at my behavior, some people don't like the word behavior. I do like the word behavior. A lot of times I think, am I, am I doing, am I taking this as prescribed? And am I doing as, as suggested to me? It's kind of what I did in Alcoholics Anonymous. They said, I suggest you no longer drink. And they said, we can't make you, but we suggest it. Yes. And, and so it really is. So, so I'm glad you, you, you know, you're, you're, talking about adherence as, as a process, as a decision. Yeah. And I think that really aligns with actually what we know about the scientific literature about medication treatment adherence. So if you look at um, research samples of people with bipolar disorder, with schizophrenia, with depression, what you see is that missing medications from time to time is more the rule than it is exception. It is human behavior. And it's not just mental health conditions, but it's you know, high blood pressure, it's diabetes, it's a variety of things. There, there's a few medications where we don't see problems in adherence. And those are medications where, uh, you know, you take them just once in a while and you get an immediate effect. So without, with those medications, you know, uh, migraine treatments or, or something like that. But for chronic health conditions, especially where you don't immediately feel an effect, um, uh, you know, suboptimal adherence is the norm. If we look at research samples with bipolar disorder, it's anywhere between 20 and 50% of people are, you know, suboptimal, you know, missing medicine from time to time. So I think it's important to normalize that. Um, and, and the normalization 
you know, ideally happens on both sides of that treatment relationship, right? The person that is getting the treatment as well as the clinician who's helping recommend treatments and suggesting treatments. So I think that's, that's really important. Um, Evidence-based medications are generally medications that are known to treat symptoms. There have been numerous studies who, that have looked at medication adherence patterns and the consequences of missing medications. And, and there's many, many, many research studies that have shown that poor adherence, um, and the research literature uses like a cutoff of like 80% or something like that. But if you miss you know, more than 20%, that your outcomes um, like hospitalizations or relapse um, in the most severe uh, cases, suicide attempts or suicide, um, clearly associated with poor adherence. So I think that kind of marches along with what you're, you know, kind of describing as your own personal experience, Kimberly. I mean, they, y- your own experience and the research evidence seem like they are, you know, really in parallel. They are. I'm my own living lab. I'm my own. You know, the other day, this new concept, living labs, you know, I'm, I'm pretty into it, actually. You know, and just, and I think about that a lot. If you, like a duck, if you put something around my leg and you watched me move around in my community, um, the times that I have opted to not take medication, and I had a remarkable lack of insight about that. And I, I remember an advanced nurse practitioner saying to me, a hallmark sign of this illness. The reason I'm laughing is because this sounds so simple to me now, but it's a lack of insight. And I found that very offensive. I remember when he said that, I was like, hmm. In that moment, in that moment, I was having lack of insight. I really wish he would have told me that before I was having it. (laughs) Because I was already having it. Or maybe had given you a little more like description or background on that. Because you're right, it, it, can also, it can come across as kind of insulting, right? Without- Yeah, the, the onus of, of that responsibility fell to me when I wasn't well. Yeah. Um, I yeah. heard what he said, I, I can understand English, I could, I could grasp the intimation. And I remember feeling a little amused by that. It was kind of that kind of arrogance. That's the way I get opinionated. It, it's less than desirable. But yeah. I think circumstantially, um, I've demonstrated myself some very serious penalties when I have opted to be erratic. And there is nothing like finding yourself, at least in my case, um, sitting in an environment that, you, that your last desire is to be there. And right. knowing, knowing that you might not get better then, that was, that's scary. When right. you go into the hospital and you realize that that might not work either, and you realize that, that you were the person that made the decision to not take your meds. I'm talking about myself. I've done that about three or four times, and I've paid very serious dues for that, monetarily, emotionally, and family. Yeah, yeah. So that, and, and that's, again, you know, kind of consistent with the research literature, too. But let's, let's, let's shift gears a little bit, kind of the other side of this topic. And, and I love your uh, living lab analogy, like that's that's great. So if we if we if we like delve into your living lab a little bit, Kimberly, what what are the things that you do or have done to help yourself stay on track with your treatment, with your medication treatment? What well, what kinds of things do you? What types of behaviors or attitudes or lifestyle changes have you made that that helps you stay on track? 
We I really appreciate that, especially right now. Last year was my hardest year with this illness that I've ever had. Um, and so I wasn't expecting that. So your timing is very good to ask me this question. Um, even though early on, I think after I'd been diagnosed about 10, 12 years, I had a very difficult time as well. So keeping myself on track looks like this. You know, number one, you really do have to drink water. They're not kidding. <laughs> number two, when I drink caffeine and I watched my father do this as well, I sometimes think alcohol, alcohol and caffeine in my life are very serious drugs, very, very serious drugs. So stimulants in my case are not a good idea, um, even though it's legal. Um, you know, as a recovering alcoholic myself, I remember back in the day, I drank copious amounts of it. Um, I no longer do that. It doesn't mean that I don't drink any, um, but you know, I don't, I don't drink a lot of it. Uh, boxing, boxing is a, a boxing techniques have been demonstrated. I think it's like EMDR, but I box three or four days a week. It's a very disciplined rhythmic sport to engage in. Well, and, and certainly exercise is definitely known to be beneficial to mood, to sleep, um, you know, stress regulation. So it sounds like um, avoiding substances that for you personally, mm. that you've observed to be a problem. And it sounds like you have a strong enough family history that that's maybe got your little antennas a little, you know, raised there that, that, that those could be triggers for you. Exercise. Um, anything else? Any, what about like the acts of medication taking? Um, yeah. oh, build man. any of that into your lifestyle? Oh, oh gosh, yes. I, my medication, I got to tell you, I, I finally got on a time release med about five years ago. Now, why no one brought this up to me prior? Man, do I wish they had. I, and I'm not being critical. You know, sometimes I think your chair is harder than my chair, you know, because I'm living in this. I, I, I'm pretty entertaining for me. <laughs> I don't know how that feels for you. But, you know, as far as I'm pretty boring, I can tell you that for sure. <laughs> I'm not bored. I'm not bored, I can tell you. But, you know, back in the day before I was on time release, you know, lots and lots of augmentation of medications. You know, sometimes the medication would stop working, unbeknownst to me. Um, usually, you know, I became irritable, irritability. Um, so it's helpful when you have a family member that has permission to tell you that. Um, you know, counseling. I learned a lot about communication so that my partner of 26 years can say to me, you know, you, you aren't acting like yourself. And so ring the doctor. And I do ring the doctor. I, I work with uh, psychiatrists, advanced nurse practitioners also, but I'm allowed to call when I go under the wave for three days with depression. I've learned to pick up the phone and report in. And I do take my meds. You know, my partner used to drop them in my hand. It was like the Pope. Drop them in my hand and take it. Drop yeah. it in my hand and take it. It was, it was a behavior that I learned at request of others because I like being married. I wanted yeah. to. And it sounds like you, you, you and your partner built into a daily routine that would help keep you well. Yeah, no doubt about it. And I, you yeah. know, for her to have accepted that responsibility in current day, by that, I mean, in the last 10 years, um, I am responsible for my own medication. I do take it. 
I, um, I mostly take it like I'm supposed to. Sometimes I get amused because sometimes if the doctor gives me a refill and does a blood test and they say that your blood test is perfect. And in my mind, I know that um, for a long time, I didn't know I had to take uh, a mood stabilizer at a certain point in time before my test. I just didn't know. The right. lab technician taught me that, not the MD. Huh. So for years, I had not done so. So I always found it, I think patient education is vital because um, over the years, uh, I don't know why at different points I would get a perfect lab. That was just luck. I just took the med, got my lab, whereas in reality, I hadn't taken my meds routinely over the course of six weeks, routinely. So, so, so information on how medications work, the timing of taking medications, it sounds like that's beneficial information to have maybe um, repeatedly, right? From well, yeah, I do need that. Yeah, if the lab tech hadn't sent me packing that day and said, you need to leave this environment, and I said, no you know, I'm here for the blood test. And he said, but when did you last take it? And I was like, I don't know, man, you know, two, three days ago. I mean, you know, apparently I wasn't right. interested in it that day. So yeah, I think that's an example of lack of insight. And I, I, I've never forgotten that man. And I've been better at my meds ever since. Good. It sounds like he gave you some very, very useful tips. Um, well, let me, let me shift gears just a little bit again, then to kind of keep our topic flowing here. But um, so you, you talked about, you know, timed release medication, and I think at least for some of your, your, your uh, medications, that's oral medic, you know, pills that you take regularly, it sounds like. Has any of your clinicians ever talked to you about um, the potential availability for long-acting injectable medicine where you would get a, a shot spaced out or, over some frequency, you know, weeks apart or or, or or maybe even longer? No, they haven't. I, the only reason I know about it, number one, I think it would have saved my father's life. So you can imagine how he was a rapid cycling bipolar. Mm. He should still be here. You know, so when I heard about it, I heard about it first from a colleague on the Southern Cape of Africa. And she, she mentioned it to me. So I started asking around. I started asking other people like me, other colleagues, um, and, and many, many of us do not know about it. So that made me sad um, to think that, that this exists. Why don't I know about it? I don't understand why I don't know about it. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I definitely hear that from uh, my patients as well and others you know, that I interact with, family members. So um, long-acting injectable antipsychotics, and that's the type of, of medications that we use typically, as evidence-based treatments for bipolar disorder, for schizophrenia, um, have been around for a long time. Um, but starting in, say, the early 2000s, there was a real growth, um, a proliferation, um, an increased number of these um, FDA-approved treatments that are available now. There's about eight of them that have indications either for schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or both. But I hear this often that people, um, just are not even aware, you know, they might be on a, a pill form of a medication that is available as a long acting injectable and they may not know that, um, you know, and it, it seems like it, you know, we talk a lot about shared decision-making, you know, so I can use your living lab experience and my 
sort of clinical experience together to make a treatment decision or treatment decisions that are the best. But if you don't have all the available information in your living lab, it's hard for you to, you know, come up with impressions if you don't know what your options are. So I'm, I'm, I'm just really kind of struck by that, um, that a lot of people are not aware. Um, if, if I want to just like push this, this topic a little bit though, let me ask you, what, what would you have liked to hear from either your past providers or your current providers about long-acting injectables? What, what kinds of information would you want to know? You know, one thing that I would like to know is the accessibility of the med medication. Where can I get it? Um, you know, and, and how is it paid for? In other words, do the insurers pay for it? Um, or, you know, is it available to me? Um, you know, how, what, what diagnosis do I need to have to attain it? Um, and also, does it interface well or otherwise with any other med I take, like my thyroid medication, for example, or would it affect my heart? Um, you know, I'm, I'm older now, you know, but I also think about the kids and how many times my phone rings, um, you know, with young people needing help. And I thought, how might adolescents and young adults, let's say you're 29 years old, you know, can they take it too? Um, yeah. So those yeah. are some of the questions that I think that we have. And how long will it last? Yeah. Right. Like symptoms, how often and how long does it last? So those are all really excellent questions. I mean, the good news is, is that, um, you know, clinical providers who prescribe medications for the treatments of bipolar disorder for, for schizophrenia should be able to answer those questions. Um, you know, generally people will get um, oral tolerance testing for a medication. So you won't get an injection to start off with. And many people will be on oral medicines for a while, right? They might have certain side effects. The, the medications are really the same. So they're the same compound. So you might expect generally that you'll see similar tolerability issues. Now, because injectables um, can deliver more of a steady kind of uh, availability of medication rather than pills, especially if somebody's erratic and taking pills, then they may actually experience fewer side effects, um, which, is, which is a benefit. Um, but you wouldn't really expect to have different um, interactions with medications that you're on for treatment of the thyroid condition or anything else. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the intervals between dosing can differ depending on the medications. And most of these long acting injectables are also available in different doses, right? So um, that can definitely be customized and should be customized depending on uh, a person's responsiveness and, and tolerability. But you know, maybe one thing I might want to just mention here about the LAIs from my side of the my side of the, the, the chair, let's just say, is that in order for a clinician to give suggestions or advice to their patient, what they really need to know is, does this medicine work for them? You know, I mentioned that these are evidence-based treatments, but they may not work for everybody all the time. But if somebody's taking a pill and they might be a little erratic in taking their medications, what the clinician doesn't necessarily know and the patient may not really appreciate either is, 
are they having symptoms because of erratic medication taking or because that medication just isn't working for that person? Um, and, and if you're on a long-acting injectable, then a clinician can make a more accurate assessment of that to figure out, you know, do, do we need to switch here? Do I, make, do I make a recommendation that we switch to something else? Um, do we augment, you know, wow. but at least then I'm using some baseline accurate information to try to make a recommendation. That is an excellent point because, you know, you know, one thing that I think might affect trust sometimes with a psychiatrist is you don't know what they know. So if you don't go in and have a brain scan and lay in scary machines and have <laughs> magnets, you know, nothing against it, nothing against it. But I thought, I think it would help build the relationship that they would have something to base it on and something to talk to me about. Um, you know, so I think it's a really, really good idea. Not just because of medication, but also because the family would also know. You know, did Kimberly go for her shot? I'm, I'm thinking of people that I know that have been maligned. And I don't believe that people die because they're not trying. I think maybe they just didn't have the right solution. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's go back to your living lab a little bit here for a second. How, how would you recommend that people who are being treated, let's say for bipolar disorder, how, how would you recommend that folks that are in treatment ask their clinicians about LAI? Do you have any kind of words of wisdom on that? Well, you know, part of it, I'm an advocate, so I've heard you talk about it. I, you know, part of it is we need literature. If you see a psychiatrist for 30 minutes that's billable to X, you know, then hopefully if there's something that they can give us in any language where we can read about that when we leave, that would be helpful um, if they don't have time to educate us. The other thing is that you can get leading advocates. I'm a leading advocate. But, you know, for those advocates that do take it or have, let us talk about it. You know, we'll, we'll take the water to the desert. You know, yeah. We, yeah, we live in the living lab. We are the living lab. <laughs> so, so I think that's an excellent point. So what I, what I hear sometimes from my patients um, who are kind of like thinking about it is, mm, is this going to really hurt? Yeah. Or am I going to just, am I going to be like a zombie if I'm taking this? And um, sometimes hearing from somebody who has that actual experience can be really useful where you can say, you know, you've been on oral aripiprazole. And if you know what that feels like, you know, you know what that compound does in your body. And that can be very powerful to hear from somebody. Yeah, peer-to-peer -peer models or how we manage ourselves and living labs between visits. And usually if you give us something useful, we tell each other and then we talk about it at peer conferences and we do panels like this one. And that's why we're doing it. Yeah, yeah. I guess this is a good time to mention some of the outstanding work that DBSA is doing to talk about yes. the kind of support and advocacy so we can normalize things like what a, what a drag it can be sometimes to just have to do all the stuff that you need to, to take care of your health, but, but it being so worthwhile in the end. Yeah, DBSA is a life-saving organization, in my opinion. Um, when I got involved with DBSA about eight years ago, it, there is no question that I've benefited ever since. So advocacy organizations like this, 
I wouldn't be sitting in this chair. And I mean that in a literal sense, sometimes I feel that way, but also the opportunity. And that just means that throughout our country, if you don't have a lot of money to go out and go seek psychiatric as often as you would like, it doesn't mean that you can't get the information so that you know what your options are. So that on the day you get to go get your injectable, <laughs> you know more than you used to. Yeah. So the risk and the benefits, and that's what we need. What's the risk? What's the benefit? And how do I get it? Right, right, exactly. All right. Well, Kimberly, I really, really thank you for your input, uh, for giving me some insight into the, into the living lab. It's really been a pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.